when we lived up on the North Coast, I remember seeing a news story about counterfeit $50 notes that were doing the rounds um, on the Gold Coast. And we weren't too far away from the Gold Coast. Now, I don't normally have $50 notes in my wallet. My wife won't let me have them um, because if I do have them, I go and spend them. So therefore, I don't have $50 notes in my wallet. So, And that's the other reason that she won't let me have $50 notes. But that's not the point that I wanted to make. The point I wanted to make was I did happen to have a $50 note in my wallet at the time that I saw this news story. Now, I don't know about you, but, but my instinct was to grab my wallet, get that $50 note out, and see if it was a real $50 note. See, when you know that there are counterfeit $50 notes doing the rounds, well, it's natural that you ought to check the ones that you've got and make sure that they are the real thing. Have a look at them and make sure that they are the real thing. Now, I mention this because the big issue in 1 John has been false teaching. John is worried that, that this church has been invaded by these false teachers who are corrupting the church and, and unsettling the church by the things that they're saying. So when you know that there are false teachers around, it's a smart thing to actually think about the teaching that you are hearing. Is this the real thing? Is this true? Now, there are still false teachers around today. And normally when we think of false teachers, you kind of you hear that expression and you think it's going to be some shady person hanging around in some dark alley that they're going to be passing off some false message around there. But that's not what false teachers look like. See, false teachers today can actually have very large followings, uh, can be quite popular and well-received by people. Uh, false teachers come in all shapes and sizes and there will be false teachers among this group here. See, here are some of the probably better-known church leaders and preachers around our world today. But not all of them are telling the truth about who Jesus is. See, amongst this group, there are false teachers. And you've got to weigh up what it is that they're saying. You've got to assess the message and assess whether or not they're telling you the truth about Jesus. False teachers are still out there and John is saying that we need to make sure that we assess what it is that these people say. I'll show you the picture later on if you want and I can tell you who all the people are if you couldn't guess all of the names. But I won't tell you which ones are the false teachers. You've got to figure that out for yourself. But we're going to start with what I think are probably the most confusing verses in 1 John. Have a look at your Bible, verses 6 to 8, right at the beginning of the passage that we're looking at. John says this, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. And he means... What by this? I mean, it's fairly confusing, isn't it, on the face of it? But I think we've got to try and understand what the false teachers might have been saying. Uh, we've got a bit of an idea of what that was, um, but in some ways it's just speculation, and I, and I want to say that this is just a guess at what this passage is saying. I, I wouldn't want to say that I'm absolutely certain, but I'm pretty sure that this is what John's talking about. I think the false teachers were saying that Jesus, the flesh and blood human being Jesus, who was just any old person, became the Christ at his baptism. Now, 
I can sort of understand how they've arrived at that view. Read through the Gospels, you've got the Spiritus descending like a dove coming down and landing on Jesus at that point. And you've got God's voice then saying, this is my son whom I love. So it's probably understandable that, that you'd think that something significant is happening there, that perhaps there is a change taking place, that the flesh and blood Jesus is now becoming the Christ. But John said all the way through this letter, no, Jesus is the Christ right from the very beginning, has been the whole time. The whole time he's been the flesh and blood God amongst us. So it wasn't anything significant that happened at the water, at his baptism. He is the Christ. He was before when he was just flesh and blood and he was after his baptism as well. So he is the Christ completely. So I think that's what the water and the blood and the spirit are actually talking about. I think John's wanting to say, no, no, nothing significant happened there. That's just a confirmation at his baptism that he is the son of God, that he is God in the flesh. So Jesus is the one. He's wanting to reassure his friends that the Jesus that they've believed in is the true Jesus, that they don't need to listen to this other stuff that these people are saying. Well, then he moves on to a different tack and he talks about the fact that the Spirit is actually further confirmation within us. Pick it up in verse 10 and look at what he says. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made, has, uh, has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. John says that it's actually the Spirit's work in our lives and in our hearts to convince us of the truth about Jesus. The Spirit convinces us that he is the Son of God. The Spirit convinces us that we have eternal life through him. And the Spirit puts this testimony about Jesus in our hearts. Every genuine Christian knows what John's talking about here because they know that work of the Spirit in their heart. In fact, you can't be a Christian without that work in your heart. See, being a Christian is not a matter of accumulating good deeds and being a Christian is not a matter of simply acknowledging a few facts about Jesus. Being a Christian is about believing who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God and trusting in him that he is the one who has dealt with your sin through his death on the cross. And the only way that you're going to be able to arrive at that point is if the Spirit's at work. See, if you believe that Jesus is God... You haven't come to that point just because you're clever enough. You've come to that point because the Spirit's convinced you of that. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins on the cross, well, you haven't got there because you're just smart enough. You've got there because the Spirit's convinced you of that. If you've accepted the forgiveness that comes through Jesus, you didn't get there because of your great intelligence on this particular matter. The Spirit has enabled you to do that. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. See, see, ultimately it's got to be the Spirit's work, hasn't it? Have you ever had that experience where you're talking to someone and they've said, well, what is it that you believe as a Christian? And you start explaining it and you're thinking to yourself, I'm trying to tell this person that a 33-year-old Jewish carpenter who died 
2,000 years ago is the saviour of the world. That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, does it? I mean, that doesn't seem that logical to believe that. But the Holy Spirit convinces you that it's the truth, doesn't he? He shows you that Jesus is the Son of God, that he did die for your sins and that he rose again from the dead and you can have forgiveness and life through him. The Spirit is the one who opens your eyes to the truth about who Jesus is. Well, what's John's purpose been in writing this letter? I think part of his purpose has been to warn them about the false teachers that are, that are obviously corrupting their church, warning them about the message that these guys have. But do you know what his overall message is? Do you know why he wrote this letter? He wants to assure them that they've got the truth. He wants them to have confidence in their Christian lives. And there's three particular areas here in this last section where he just reminds them about the confidence that they can have. Confidence in the way that they face this life, confidence in prayer and confidence about their future. You still find churches, there are some churches around today that seem to have a bit of a preoccupation with Satan and how he is at work in the world. They seem to spend a lot of time talking about Satan and what he does. I had a friend who was involved in a church some years ago and every time I saw him, he wanted to talk to me about, oh man, Satan's really been at work in this thing and really been doing this. And He seemed to spend more time talking about Satan than he did talking about Jesus. It seemed quite a strange thing to me. But John says that we need not worry about Satan. We need to recognise that Satan is a reality and Satan is there. Look at what it says in verse 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Satan is at work in our world. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Talking about Satan, he says, The ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, So Satan is clearly there and at work and look at how Peter describes him. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You'd be crazy to think that there isn't that dark side in our world, that Satan's influence isn't there. It is. But go back to verse 18. John wants to reassure his readers that they have nothing to fear. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin and the one who was born of God keeps him safe. Jesus, the one who was born of God, keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him. When I was growing up, I had an older brother who was uh, two years older, two inches taller and considerably more ugly than me. Um, I have to say that that was a great reassurance. There were a number of times when I managed to get myself out of difficult situations, not because of my ability, not because of any great prowess that I had, but because I had a brother who was two years older, two inches taller and considerably uglier than me. It was a great reassurance on a few occasions to have him around. Well, John says, and I hope this doesn't seem too crass, but John says that we've actually got the biggest big brother that there is. See, if our trust is in Jesus, then no harm can come to us from the evil one. That's what it says, isn't it? And the evil one cannot harm him. No harm can come to us if our trust is in Jesus. And that's the confidence that we can have as we face this life. 
we can know that we have nothing to fear from Satan. We have nothing to fear from anyone, the Bible tells us. Now, that's not to say that bad things won't happen to us. They may. In fact, I'm sure each one of us could talk about some of the terrible things that we've had to face even just recently. Bad things may happen, but we know where our confidence is. And we know that we have one that we can trust in and it means that we can rise above those difficulties that we face. Our trust is in the God who made all things, the God who sent his son to save us. So we can face this life with confidence no matter what difficulties might come our way, no matter what circumstances we might find ourselves in, no matter how things may seem bad to us, we can know that we have a God that we can trust in who promises that he will guide us and direct us through those things. John says we can have confidence in prayer. Pick it up in verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we, that we have what we've asked of him. Might seem like that verse 14 is a bit of a cop out, that we can have confidence in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. Might seem like, well, that doesn't mean he's going to answer all of our prayers, just the ones that he wants to. Well, can I say, I don't think it is a cop out. I think that's how, how earthly fathers operate, isn't it? I mean, Benjamin is now 14 years old. Uh, imagine I'm sitting in the lounge room, he comes in and says, Dad, can I have the keys to the car? I want to take a few friends out to the movies. What will I say to that? I wouldn't put it past him that he might ask that, actually. But, but what would I say to that? I mean, of course I'm going to say, no, you can't have the car, mate. You don't have a driver's licence and you don't know how to drive. I'm not going to give you the keys to the car. But if he comes to me and says, Dad, can you come out and shoot some baskets with me? Or, Dad, can you help me with my maths homework? There'll be two things that I'll be very happy to answer and say, yeah, I'd love to. I'd be, I'd be dumbfounded if he did any maths homework. But, <laughs> but I'd love to answer that request. See, he earthly fathers will answer requests that are according to their will, won't they? Because an earthly father has the best interests of the child at heart will want to do what is best for that child, will want to help that child, will want to do everything that they can to show their love to that child. But there will be some things where they will say no. And John says the same thing operates with God. If we ask for anything that's according to his will, we can know that he will give us those things. And the opposite is also true, that if we ask for things that God considers that are not in our best interests, he won't give us those things. And we should thank him for it. It might not seem like we should thank him when we don't get what it is that we thought we needed, but we should thank him that he is a heavenly father who loves us and gives us what is best for us. See, we can have confidence when we approach God. Confidence in a heavenly father who loves us beyond measure. A heavenly father who loves us enough that he sent his son for us. So we can have complete confidence as we approach him in prayer. But the most important confidence, John says, that we can have is confidence about the future. Go back to verse 11. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. 
He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And then down to, in, says the same thing in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. See, that's been his whole purpose in writing this letter. What you've got is the truth. Keep believing that. Don't let people come in from outside and, and rattle your faith. You have the truth. Keep believing of that. You can have certainty not only in your prayer life, not only in this life, you can have certainty about the future because of what God has done for you. There's no, nothing more sad than seeing people who don't know where they're going when this life comes to an end. And I think it's most sad when you see people in churches who aren't certain about where they're going when this life comes to an end. There are people who would call themselves Christians, but they're not sure what's going to happen at the end of this life. We had a guy in our church on the north coast. He was been involved in the church for uh, many more years than I've been alive. But he always used to say, whenever we talked about heaven, he'd always pull me aside and say, oh, gee, I hope I'm going to heaven when I die. Well, God doesn't want you to hope that you're going to heaven. He wants you to be absolutely certain. And let's be clear about this. There is no hoping about going to heaven. If you have your trust in Jesus, then you are certain of having eternal life. And God wants you to be certain. Look at it again, verse 11. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. God has given it to us. It's his work and the work of his Son that will achieve eternal, eternal life for you. He who has the Son has life and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's exactly what the best known verse in the Bible says, isn't it? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It doesn't say that whoever believes in him has got an each way bet about not perishing or having eternal life. No, it says if you believe in the son, you will not perish, you will have eternal life. And then in Romans, Paul says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you may be saved. It's a good possibility. No, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, your Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what the Bible says everywhere, isn't it? And that's the confidence that we ought to have. Certain that we're going to heaven. Certain that our sins are forgiven. But the certainty doesn't come from us or what we have done. The certainty comes from the one that we have placed our trust in. Jesus who has done it for us. So let me ask. Have you got the kind of confidence that John talks about here in this passage? Do you have that confidence in this life? Can you face life's ups and downs knowing that God's got it under control? Or do you still live in fear because you don't know what the future will be? 
Can you face the uncertainties of life trusting in Jesus? Or do you still think it's all up to you? And what about your prayer life? Do you approach God with confidence? Confidence that he loves you? Confidence that he hears you? And confidence that he will do what is best for you? And what about confidence for the future? Are you certain that when this life comes to an end, that you have an eternity with God in heaven? Some people face the end of this life with fear. Deb's had a patient just recently, uh, a committed atheist, who's been absolutely terrified about dying. And she died yesterday. Some people face this life considering, thinking about eternal life with just blissful ignorance, hoping that everything is going to be okay when this life comes to an end. But John says that because of Jesus, we can face the end of this life, no matter when that might be, with total confidence. Confidence that when this life is over, we will be with God for all eternity. 